Steeple Rock Partners is proud to sponsor this edition of the Real Estate Time Machine podcast. And very quickly, I realized that there is a big difference between people who talk a big game and people who are a big game. When you look at somebody's returns, you want to look at those returns relative to what they had underwritten, right? So if somebody says in their underwriting or their plans that they were going to make $100 and they made $80 versus some guy who said he was going to make $90 and made $90, that person is better even though on paper the returns look lower. Our guest today is the founder of multifamily syndication group Boardwalk Wealth. In our time together, Omar Khan offers a candid behind-the-scenes look at how he identifies and evaluates multifamily opportunities. Omar also shares advice to investors on how to select a syndicator when looking to invest in a multifamily deal. Behind your back, I've dubbed you the funniest guy in real estate. Really? Okay, cool. <laughs> There's not a lot of funny guys in real estate, so the bar's not that high. But, <laughs> oh, well, but you know, I, I prefer to win. I don't really care how I win. <laughs> but I like that uh, the story of how you got into syndicating real estate doesn't begin with Omar Khan was a born a poor child in rural, rural Dude, Alabama. You know, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> I freaking hate that because there's some other guy out of India or something, right? Don't get me wrong. I'm very grateful. I am very, very, very grateful that it's not because of me. It's totally because of sheer coincidence and dumb luck that I have not had to want for something major in yeah. life, right? This is pure accident, right? I was born in a good family, good supportive parents, all that. Dude, but I keep hearing this freaking story. I came with $2 in my pocket from India. I was like, what did you do, buddy? Did you swim from India? Like, what, what happened? Like, how, how could you just even arrive in the U.S.? It's not even freaking Mexico, buddy. You can't walk. How do you show up here with $2 in your pocket? I, you're like, I want so bad to have a rags to riches story, but, but I just don't. It's like, what do you want? Me? Like, I didn't know, man. I didn't get out of a dumpster, man. I'm sorry. You know, I'm sorry. What do you want me to do? My apologies. Yeah. I, I'm pol- apologizing to you because my life didn't stink before real estate. Yeah. That's awesome. Look, I'm pretty grateful. But, I mean, <laughs> yeah. like people give me that game and just kind of $2 in my pocket. I was like, all right, buddy, whatever, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chill yeah. out, man. Nobody <laughs> know. Look, unless you came at the turn of the 19th century, okay? That, yeah, that's about it, really. That's the only time you could have come to this country with two dollars in your pocket. <laughs> Outside of that, you're you're doing pretty yeah, well off. Just literally, to get here. yeah. <laughs> so you so you were in oil and gas for how long? Up in I was in oil you, and gas for about four years. Is that all in Canada or in the United States? Yeah, yeah, well? yeah, it was all in Canada. It's on the M and A's. Right, and what was it about? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, what was it about real estate say. or even multifamily that appealed to your financial sensibilities to say, you know what, it's time for a career change. Well, it wasn't really one or two things. What had happened is my family, uh, again, it's an entrepreneurial family. They didn't, didn't didn't do real estate, but they always had real estate as a big part of their portfolio. And, and by the way, a lot of Asians, I realized later on, a lot of Asians prefer real estate and these kind of things to just other things, even though my family's fairly financially sophisticated. So they own a lot of commercial real estate. And what I realized now when I talk to people is that a lot of people go residential, 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 commercial. Whereas my family had commercial and, you know, everybody had their own houses and stuff, but they didn't really focus on the whole residential part. Right. Right. So which I now realize is weird. I didn't realize growing up that thing, number one. So when I moved down to the U.S., I already kind of had that background along with the financial, you know, working on the institutional side. But for us, the big deal was that my wife's a physician. I was doing OK. And look, we were just paying a massive amount in taxes, man. I mean, it was 
it was killing us, right? Mm-hmm. And look, I've lived in a country where people don't really pay their taxes, so I I know that you got to pay your taxes, and right. I'm very appreciative of the fact that I have to pay your taxes. I just don't got to pay everybody's taxes, man. Did you have real estate modeled to you then? Or, I mean, did, were your parents intentional about teaching you, saying, okay, Omar, this is how real estate works? Or was no, it just kind none. of running in the background? No, it was. it's more of a case of osmosis. You know, you learn things. I, I think you learn things by example and uh, how people conduct themselves and, you know, your experiences in life as opposed to my dad taking me at the corner one day and teaching me the secrets. You know, <laughs> there was nothing like that. Right. It was just, you know, you, you hear these conversations, you see how people talk, how they structure themselves. For instance, you know, uh, you can say, for instance, you know, if you've got a building that's worth a couple of million dollars, when you go to a banker, how you're, how you're going to talk to a banker or try to, you know, get the money financing, all that. And then when, you know, you've got a lot of labor on your side and they're building your building, well, sometimes you've got to use choice words, right? Because that's the language they are more prone to understanding. Yes. You, right? and, you know, and in your letters and even just now, you talk a lot about speaking the right language to the right people, which I think is yeah. very, very smart. You know, in our language, real estate yeah, language. Man, I know a lot of friends in my – yeah, because I've got a lot of friends who are bankers and private equity people. And sometimes they come for a property tour, man, and they're talking to like a maintenance guy and they're talking about IRR. And I'm thinking, dude, what kind of moron are you, man? <laughs> what are you talking about, man? Like, just, just, what are you trying to prove here? <laughs> yeah, trying to be the smartest guy in the room. Yeah, what are you trying to do, man? This guy can clean house on the job that he does, and you definitely can't do that job. Right, but, right. Speak to him with his language. Well, yeah. and I think that just makes us infinitely more relatable to everybody when you share yeah. that language. Uh, so in our language, of course, you are what we would consider or call a syndicator. Yeah. As in one who syndicates deals. Yeah. So for someone new to our language, explain what that means. Look, I think what that, that means a combination of things, number one, okay, depending on your role. But there's two primary roles. One is, op- and by the way, there's a lot of overlap in these roles, okay? So they're not distinct roles, but they are two distinct roles in the sense that you're raising capital, which, by the way, you'll always have to do regardless of what level you're at. And then you're sourcing deals or the operational side of the business, right? So one is outward facing and one is inward facing. And again, there's a lot of overlap. So those are the two bigger roles. Now, you can call yourself a syndicator and be the outward facing person or the inward facing person. But really, there's two roles and then everything else is a variant of that. Mm-hmm. So how do you so what does your day look like? Do you focus more on the outward or the inward or do you find yourself having to balance both? So in my particular case, I seem I have to balance both things. Uh, what I've again, what I've realized here, this is purely by accident. This wasn't some grand plan. What I've realized is that my talent stack fits squarely uh, with doing both things. Again, I focus uh, depending on the day on say asset management or reaching out to investors because I have different days for different things. But a bulk of my work is resolving around. There's a planned set of things, or as Donald Rumsfeld would say, there are known knowns and there are unknown unknowns. Right. So there's a lot of things we've got planned out. But then every day I get up and by the middle of the day, five things have happened that I didn't even imagine were going to happen. So how do you manage that? Because, I mean, that's whether you're in real estate or not in real estate in your particular job, it's many hats at many times. But in any industry, it can be like that. How have you found it to be effective to manage your time so that you're not overwhelmed by the things you didn't plan and never get the things done that you did plan? Well, first of all, I don't think this is just my, again, from my experience, I don't think you can ever really conquer this. Short of that, 
I feel uh, number one, the criteria is having a very strict criteria. So in our particular case, you know, I'm in a few markets. I'm looking at a, a lot of deals and we have a very strict criteria. So our buy box or our investment criteria is 100 to 200 units, 10 to $20 million, clear value add with 10 to 15% below market rents, right? So if it's anything above that, anything below that, you kind of have to become militant, right? So if it's 85 units, but it's right in your sweet spot, you got to pass. If it's, say, 250 units, you got to pass. And trust me, initially, it's painful because you think, oh, my God, if I let this go, nothing's going to happen. And then what am I going to do? And blah, 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 blah. But you just got to get into the habit of putting like uh, putting rules and structure around your decision making. Right. Because if you're going to grind your gears trying to chase every single deal. Man, you're going to burn out within a week. It's just not going to happen. Right. And then on the other side, for instance, hiring the right people, that's still challenging because obviously, uh, you know, you always feel like you can do a better job, obviously. Right. As an entrepreneur, Mm -hmm. that's still challenging. And then the other thing is, for instance, man, I run everything by my calendar. Right. My literal life is run by a calendar. I literally have people who tell me, oh, let's meet up. I was like, bro, just send me a calendar invite. Because if it's on my calendar, this means that I can see it as a reminder. And I'm a very checklist oriented sort of a person, right? I'm, I, I try to be a systematic sort of a person. So what I can then do is do something, check it off, do something, check it off, do something, check it off. Right. So if I do that, uh, nah, it's weird. I actually get some sort of a visceral pleasure checking off an item that I was supposed to do. Right. Mm-hmm. I was like, ah, oh, done sense of accomplishment, even if it's something really small. Yeah. <laughs> Pats on the back are not hard to come by. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's the small things, right? Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. But again, it, you got to put some sort of a structure. What I'm trying to say is you got to have some sort of a structure and whatever framework works for you. Look, I'm a numerical numbers oriented guy. So my say, say task list would even be one, two, three, four. But somebody say who's, it sounds really stupid, but if you're not saying numerically inclined, your task list might go A, B, C, D. The point is as long as it's a framework that works for you. Right. How long does it take? How long did it take you to arrive at a framework that works for you? Because that is such a trial and error process. And, you know, I've had friends that have gone through literally a dozen different types of day planners, type of calendars before they'll arrive at something that finally kind of clicks with how they are and who they are. To be honest with you, I'm a lazy guy. So I prefer to do the thing that is not look i prefer to keep things simple and i try to do something not if it's like the most optimum way of doing it but is this going to be something that i'm going to consistently do because i can create like the world's greatest planner but if i don't follow it man i mean it's just what's the point of that planner yes and i think that's, that's the way i look at it well and that's in that i mean that is a that is a life lesson there because i think what i oftentimes have seen myself do is compare highly effective and efficient people take a look at what they do and try to adopt it only to realize that I'm going to fail at it because it's just not me and be okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. Plus I think again, from what I learned is that I'm somewhat OCD about the things that I do like. So if you're say, if you were like me, if you worked in say investment banking, M&A, corporate finance for a long period of time, a lot of guys actually at least used to do a lot of financial modeling, right? So with financial modeling, what happens is that you can be as granular or as high level as you like to be. And part of the learning experience with that is when you work with say high level people is realizing when do you have to go granular and when do you have to when something high level is good enough. Right. But that you only learn with experience. 
right? You can't, I mean, you can become better at it, but you only learn with experience. And that then translates into a lot of other areas of your life. Ah, that's a very, very solid point. Well, let me ask you this. So oil and gas, high finance. I mean, you clearly have a finance yeah. background. You're a numbers guy. Of all the different types of real estate you could go into, yeah. what made you settle into syndicating multifamily? Well, uh, for me, it was very simple. Number one, it's scalable mm-hmm. uh, for where, where I was and where I am. Number two, the strategy is explainable to, say, uh, the types of investors that I had. So that that actually kind of feeds into the scalable model. Because it's no use, for instance, having worked, I know a lot of guys who work on the hedge fund side, and a lot of guys have really esoteric strategies that, by the way, are really good strategies. But if you can't go sell that strategy, right, and raise money for it and then implement that strategy, that strategy might as well not exist. So similarly over here, it's a combination of scalability, then the ability to explain that strategy and then to raise money for it. And then lastly for us, because we wanted to manage our tax exposure, as I told you earlier, so this also offered us a good combination of managing our tax exposure while also generating a significant amount of cash flow. Hey, let's talk about tax strategies for just a minute. Since since you're a finance guy and you're a number Yeah, but I'm not a tax strategist, man. Yes, I know, but <laughs> but one of the things you appreciate about multifamily is the depreciation that comes with it. Yeah. I mean, you know, we just paid taxes a couple of days ago. Um, you know, in as much as possible, my goal is to invest alongside, you know, the investors that I have in each deal, uh-huh, which means uh-huh. this year I had a lot of K-1s, uh-huh. uh, more so than I've ever had. So explain, if you can, however you can, explain to me how I as an investor can earn dividends and pretty healthy ones uh, throughout the course of the year, yeah. yet a project can report losses. Well, basically how that works is through depreciation. Depreciation is not primarily, not always, primarily it works through a depreciation or rather accelerated depreciation when you implement a cost segregation study. It's just a fancy way of saying that depreciation is a non-cash expenditure. So it's not like money you've actually spent, right? It's not like money going out of your pocket. In other words, what happens is let's assume you bought something for $100, right? And we're going to keep things simple. So you implement, and let's assume you can only use that thing for 10 years, as an example. So 100 divided by 10 is, if you think about it, if you were to evenly distribute it over 10 years, you get $10 of value every year from it, right? Or in other words, what it means is $10 of value is depleted from that asset every year, right? So by the end of the 10 years, you'll be at zero. So now, because that is still an expense, because what will happen at the end of 10 years is you now have to go buy a new machine or an asset or whatever whatever thing you got to buy. So the government, in, in effect, tells you, OK, this is a non-cash expenditure because you spend all the money up front. So each year, because accounting works on an accrual basis, and guys, if you don't know this, trust me, do not bore yourself to death. If you don't have to know it, honestly, you really don't have to know it, right? But if you do know it, it it really helps you, right? So basically, you can take that reserve, uh, the $10 a year we talked about, and offset it against your income. Because the idea is just because you don't see an expense going from you, you or you don't see an expense incurring, doesn't mean the expense doesn't get incurred. It just means you don't see it. So that's kind of how it works high level. Obviously, there's a lot more to it than I've said, and I've... Uh, made it very high level. <clears throat> the overall point is, yes, you can earn dividends and you can, you know, at In the fact, end of those dividends. If you, you structure things properly, correct. you should only be earning dividends and never paying taxes. Correct. Yes. And I think that's, that's a, the nirvana. Yes, it is. And I think it because it's nirvana and a surprise to a lot of investors, uh, sometimes I, I feel like they look at me with kind of a suspicious eye 
Like, are you sure you understand this or you're explaining it correctly? I can earn money but not pay taxes on that through real estate? And the answer is yes, because there is depreciation going on. All right, so so walk me through this. Uh, boardwalk Wealth, walk me through what happens in the, what is on top level your process from beginning to vet an apartment complex to when an investor gets an invitation to participate in their inbox. So I know there's tons of details that go A to Z on that, but walk me through in part your process for vetting a project. Because as you mentioned, you pass on a lot of projects that you could probably win, but there's reasons you're passing on it. I think it'd be interesting to hear some of the reasons why. Well, look, high level, by the time an investor gets uh, the mar- the email which says, hey, we've got a project and all that stuff, 90, short of the raising the capital part, if you don't include that as work, if that is work, but let's assume we don't include that, 95% of the work is kind of already done. Yes. Okay. And the reason why it's relatively smoother, it should be smoother, and I'm going to tell you, give you a high level overview is because you're assuming that what you're not doing is buying, say, one asset in New York, one asset in California, one asset in Boston, one asset in Chicago. You're not doing that. So you've picked excuse me, specific markets and you have deep market expertise and relationships in those markets. So that's why you're able to A, move quicker. So now let me explain what happens. So for instance, in the case of Jacksonville, right? When we chose, we, I live in Dallas. When we chose to pick Jacksonville as one of our markets, this was after a lot of economic research. What happened is for the first six months, we kept going to Jacksonville. We got on everybody's radars, kept doing property tours. And the intention of the property tours, to be very honest with you, was not to even buy something. Like short of like literally the deal of the century showing up, the expressed purpose of going to the property tour was getting FaceTime with brokers. Okay. Then talking to brokers and then just following up. It's a weekly thing. Just following up. Hey, John, what's going on? Just want to check in and see what's going on. Blah, 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 blah. Small talk, small talk, small talk, small talk, small talk, right? <laughs> so the idea there is to become not the guy from the internet, but Omar from Dallas who's buying 100, 200 units, 10 to $20 million value add BNC type properties, right? We did that for six months. But then specifically when we're talking to John or Greg or whoever's our broker, we don't say, hey, we want to buy a multifamily asset in Jacksonville because, dude, what, what does that even mean, right? I tell John and Greg, hey, in San, San Jose submarket, in San Marcos submarket, near Orange Park, Argyle Park, Argyle Forest, and the beaches. These are the particular submarkets. Again, because I've done research on them, these are the particular submarkets. And this, this, this type of profile of assets, uh, multifamily assets, is what I'm looking for or at. So what happens again is now again you're filtering this process, right? Now a lot of people say, yeah, but this would mean that I would look at less deals. And you're kind of right. You might look at less deals. But the issue also is the deals you do look at, A, they're pre-qualified. Then the broker already knows that you're only looking at these things. So he's prepared everything for you, right? Because you're the guy who just wants that specific thing. Because what happens a lot in this business is this isn't like buying $30,000 houses, right? Or wholesaling houses. This isn't a volume business. This is a margin business. So you got to wait for that big fat pitch to show up. So sometimes you might have to wait 6, 8, 12 months. I'll be honest with you. Right. And nothing happens. It's crickets. And then you do two deals back to back. Right. So doing a lot of research up front, developing those relationships, but being hyper, hyper specific. Mm -hmm. Right. So when you get that level of specificity, what usually also happens as a result of that level of specificity is that let's assume the first time you look at an asset in a particular submarket, a particular profile of asset. To be honest with you, what you'll probably be doing is also looking at all the comps and kind of analyzing them. Right. 
So within say six to eight months, if you look at any other asset within that submarket, you've already looked at it before because you analyzed it at another deal's comps. So very quickly, your market knowledge is developing, like at, at a super fast pace. But again, you got to be really focused. It's like any other thing in life, right? So then when these assets do come on, in the case of the deal we did, San Jose Apartments, when these assets do come on, not only are you top and front of mind of the brokers, you've already done a lot of homework surrounding all the stuff. So you're able to move very quickly, right? And because you're able to move very quickly, because you've been so specific in your outreach, that's how you get the deal. And so Absolutely. then you get the deal and obviously, you know, assuming the price works and all of the other material and all the details work, then the investor get an email. By that time, about a good, not counting capital raising, a good 70 to 80% of the work is done, right? So by the time the investors come in, a good portion of the work is already done or should be done by that time. Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, that's <clears throat> that seems intuitive because by the time you're seeing a deal, it is pre-vetted in some ways. So you know that if it has met your strict criteria, the broker's not wasting your time, you're not wasting their time. I mean, that's it's it's like dating, you know, if you <laughs> it's like why are you wasting your time going to bars if you don't want to meet that kind of girl to marry? It's yeah. like you have a preset idea of who you want to be with, go those places. Speak oh, yeah. that language. <laughs> Find oh, the I friends of those people. Oh, I completely agree with you. Yeah. But again, a lot of this you learn from experience, but you have to realize specificity gets funding, right? So, yes. yeah, you don't look at a gazillion deals, but when you, the, the hundred you do look at, they're all right down the middle. So they are things you should only be looking at, and then you're not wasting your time looking at stuff you shouldn't be looking at. That makes sense. All right, so I'm going to so put on your sales hat for just a minute. I've got, yeah. I'm an investor. I have uh -huh. two deals sitting in front of me. Okay, I have investment capital. I want to put in yeah. one of them. Now, neither of these deals has a geographic advantage, and the numbers yeah. appear on the surface to be comparable. I haven't dived into it yet. Uh -huh. Why would I choose the Boardwalk Wealth deal? Well, you choose a Boardwalk Wealth deal based on AR experience, our track record. And number two, what you'll also do it is, first of all, I don't know what my competition is, right? So that depends on the competition. In our particular case, when I moved to Texas, I'll just give you a personal example. When I moved to Texas and we were looking to deploy some of our own money, some of our friends and family's money, because based on my background, at least, what I did is I started talking to pretty much most of the syndicators in the market. And Dallas is like ground zero for this kind of stuff, right? And very quickly, I realized that there is a big difference between people who talk a big game and people who are a big game, right? And the difference is very simple. When you look at somebody's returns, you want to look at those returns relative to what they had underwritten, right? So if somebody says in their underwriting or their plans that they were going to make $100 and they made, say, $80, Right? Versus some guy who said he was going to make $90 and made $90. The person who said that, you you better, and consistently somebody has done this, right? That person is better even though on paper the returns look lower, number one. Number two, what I was very quickly seeing was that a lot of people had been bailed out in the last few years, not because they were operationally better. It's just because the market was going up or, or cap rates were compressing. That's it. And the, the problem with that kind of thing is when things are going good, it's really good, man, because every idiot thinks they're, they're, they're the next Donald Trump or Sam Zell, right? But when things don't go good, that's when you got to watch out. Hmm. So very quickly, when I was at least when I was new to Texas, very quickly, I filtered through a lot of these people. And the few people I did end up working with, I worked with them specifically for their operational jobs. Same way as our investors work with us, not because, you know, 
I would like to think I'm the prettiest looking syndicator around, but not just because of that. It's because of our operational jobs, the fact that, look, even if there is an issue, we have enough professional experiences in the background to just take care of it very quickly and very efficiently. So I'm a new investor and I get a a Boardwalk Wealth deal in front of me. What do I need to look at to convince me to invest in this deal? So educate a, a novice investor. He gets this pack of 30-page pack or 40-page uh-huh. pack. Walk him through what does he need to be looking at to evaluate a deal? Well, first of all, I would tell him to tell him or her to just stop looking at the pack and, number one, realize uh, develop a relationship with the syndicator, hmm. number one, because there is no deal in the world that is good enough uh, if you don't have a relationship with the person that, or, or you know of them or they come highly recommended. Because the deal is a lot of good deals have been run into the ground by people who are incompetent and a lot of seemingly stupid deals have become home runs because of the people who were running it actually, right? So what I would tell somebody is first of all, develop a relationship with me and try to understand my process. And look, I'll explain to you my process and everything and see if that's a good fit. Because what I tell people is, and I feel like I'm barking up the wrong tree or hitting my head against a wall. Look on the institutional side, look on the retail side, everybody says, hey, what are the returns? Because invariably, no matter how much education you give people to like, well, that guy's offering like higher returns. And you're like, okay, uh, have you looked at the risks around that? Maybe this guy hasn't done deals before. Maybe they have no execution jobs, right? So on the institutional level, the first question people ask is, what are the risks associated with doing this project, right? So if you map out your risks, you understand the risk, personnel, deal, all of those risks, then you should start going to returns. Then you should be returns, a return analysis should come right at the end. So again, when you get our deal deck, what you should be looking for is, A, what is our reputation in the market? What are your referrals saying about us, right? What do you think our relationship would be together if you were to work together? And what are you looking for? And obviously, part of that is you probably already know me. That's why you get the deal deck, right? So develop a relationship first, understand the process, see if it's a good fit for you, and then move on from there. Well, and I I would say that puts you in the... Gosh, very small percentage of syndicators that are begging for investors to call them personally and develop a relationship. And I think that's, I think you're right. People do business with people they trust. They trust people who give them accessibility, uh, you know, personally and to the data. So I think you're right on there. Because my point is at the end of the day, guys, uh, there are no hidden secrets. It's not like, you know, one guy has gone to this one school or taken this mentor's class and now he knows something that nobody else knows. There are no secrets. The The only secret, it's like most other things in life. It's just execution, saying what you do and doing what you're going to say and then following up on it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> that reminds me, There, it seems like there are tons of mentorship programs uh, right now. You know, pay me $30,000 and I'll teach you how to syndicate a deal. Well, you've heard a saying, Kirk, those who can do, those who can't teach. (laughs) I am a Sunday school teacher. What does that mean for me? Well, Um, you're not (laughs) teaching for profit, I hope. That's what it means. If you're a Sunday school teacher, you have a different kind of... (laughs) This is is going for people who give weekend courses at the airport Sheraton. (laughs) That's funny. Look, uh, uh, I, look, I hope my business obviously has exponentially grown. But one of the things that I'm looking for uh, or through my business to provide, what I tell a lot of my investors is, look, we're optimizing for returns, but we're also optimizing for peace of mind. Because I'd much rather go to sleep safe knowing at night 
that I, for instance, on paper at least, I would say 100 basis points lower than my competition, but then you got the money. It was like clockwork. You come in, you get your money, you get out. You get your money, you get out. You get your money and you get out. As opposed to going on this wild ride up and down, up and down, up and down. Cool. So you can go to our website, uh, Board Walk Wealth, B-O-A-R-D, Walk Wealth. I'm going to make this really easy for your listeners. Right on the front page, you can enter your name, you can enter your email, kind of how you found out about us. Mention Kirk's podcast. And then you can also email me at omar at boardwalkwealth.com. At the end of each interview, our guest is asked to go back in time to mentor their 20-year-old self. Are you telling me that you built a time machine? Whatever warning I give, my young self would not heed that warning and go make the same mistakes that I made, number one. I'm 100% confident of that, right? <laughs> in fact, but might even double down because you told might me Might even to. double down just to prove me wrong, right? Uh, Only but, to prove yourself right again. Yeah, yeah, I guess right <laughs> in this case. Uh, but I do feel like I've learned from those experiences, so every experience is a learning spot. In terms of book, I, I would say something along the lines of, say, Fool by Randomness, uh, which is a uh, book, or actually Black Swan by Talib. The, the, both of these books are by Talib. And basically, the, what was that? The, the Daniel Kahneman book, uh, Thinking Fast and Slow. It's a combination of these two books because it tells you about not how people should respond rationally, but how do people actually respond? And the tricks are mind plays when we're trying to make decisions, both under stress and otherwise. So we hope you gained something from today's guest. Now, feel free and talk about what you learned from the conversation on the comments section of this podcast on the Real Estate Time Machine website. So I asked today's guests to share more about their personal philosophy, the big idea that drives their life and work. We'll post those deep thoughts at the end of the week on Philosophy Friday, only on the Real Estate Time Machine.